Hello, humans. For lack of a better word, this is a trigger warning. If the idea of women having access to safe and legal abortions is upsetting to you, just skip this episode. Uh, we go to great lengths to avoid um, talking about political issues. And there's just no way to talk about Gloria Allred and who she is and how she sees the world without including some defining moments, which include inherently political issues. She has sued the president <laughs> or represented people suing the president of the United States. So there is more. We, we try our best to make sure that no matter who you are, or where you're from or what you believe, there's something in this program for you. Uh, this one just there's no way to avoid certain issues. So um, that's it. You know, if if you got to skip it, I don't blame you. And I will see you on the next one, hopefully. So life has showed up and a couple of things have really felt like they've knocked the wind out of my sails. And as our guest today, Gloria Allred puts it, sometimes you take two steps forward and one step back. And I feel like I've taken a little step back. Um, this is part of life and it's unfortunate because I really felt like I was on a roll, but you know, I took some time, but I made a mistake and here's the mistake. I didn't feel well. And this is part of having mental illness and even just part of life is that there's, there's hard times and I'm all for taking a little bit of time to relax, but I went past that and I want to talk about it in case it can help any of you in your current situation. This is a huge interview for us. Meg spent months uh, lining it up, literally months emailing. It didn't seem like it was going to happen. When I told my mom we got Gloria Allred on the program, she accused me of lying. <laughs> That's how much of a fan my mom is. She said, you're lying. And... Um, I really wanted to knock this intro out of the park. I wanted to have great sounds and really sweep you off your feet and do the absolute best job I could at introducing what I think is a, a living piece of American history, really. And so I waited to feel strong enough to deliver that kind of intro or inspired enough to produce that kind of intro. And it was a mistake. Because today I went for a drive and I listened to the conversation. And I actually rewatched the documentary about Gloria Allred called Seeing Allred, which is on Netflix. And I just imagined what she would say to me if I told her, oh, you know, I really can't wait to release your interview. But, you know, I just don't feel like I'm ready to do the introduction. It's, you know, you're a big deal and I really want to get it right. She would tell me to show up. Because that's what professionals do. We show up even when we feel lousy. We lead with our hearts and we do our best. And you know what that means? That means it's not always going to be a win. It's not always going to be your best work. But I feel a deep responsibility to doing this program. As silly as that sounds, I really enjoy talking to these incredible individuals and when I get to release their conversation, I feel so good that I was a part of capturing that little 
moment of time. And, you know, here it is. Meg, thank you so much for your hard work getting this interview. Because of how hard she worked, actually, this interview is Director's Cut, Meg edition, and she wanted the interview mostly raw. Normally, we would have done a ton of editing. We would have cleaned here and smoothed it out there and gotten rid of anything um, political, especially. But Meg wanted it mostly raw. And so this is Meg's director's cut of Gloria Allred, who, if you don't know her, definitely does not need an introduction from me. She does a very fine job of telling you exactly who she is and what she's about. For anyone out there feeling like me, feeling like the challenges ahead are possibly too much and that they really just need someone to come rescue them. You are strong enough. Show up. Here is my conversation with Gloria Allred. Hi. Hi, Sam. Gloria, I like to start off. I'm sorry. I'm nervous right now a little bit. Okay. Well, you're in friendly territory. Okay, good. I'm used to any and every question and happy to hear them and I may or may not answer them, but I'm happy to hear any and all questions. Okay, good. I like to start off this way. Unlike the President of the United States, <laughs> if you ask a question that I might not like, you can still come back. Yeah. Yeah. You won't be kicked out. You that, won't be excluded. That's good. I think that's uh, important to... So I hope that makes you <laughs> yeah. comfortable and more at ease. Yeah. We uh, generally stay away from politics, but since he is your uh, adversary in the courtroom, I don't think it's political at all in this case. Well, yeah. you know, I, I just think that uh, President Trump, I have strong feelings about him. I think a lot of people do. I think those who don't uh, perhaps are not aware of the importance of the presidency. Yeah. I like to start off with this question. It can be as big or small as you want it to be, but who are you? <laughs> I've been an attorney for 42 years. We are the leading private women's rights law firm in the United States, and we also do minority rights. We're well known, for example, for more than 40 years of uh, lawsuits and advocacy for individuals who are gay and lesbian, transgender, for those who have HIV or AIDS. And also, we're known for fighting for those who've been discriminated against in employment or by businesses on account of their race, their physical handicap, their national origin, or their age, those who've been sexually harassed on the job, those who've been discriminated against on account of their gender. This is what we do. We're a plaintiff's law firm. We fight for the individual against the rich, the powerful, the famous, government, large corporations, small businesses. And we feel very blessed to be able to do that. And I'm happy to say that we do have a record of success. We've won hundreds of millions of dollars for victims. Essentially, we are a victim's rights law firm. Yeah, your name uh, definitely strikes fear into some. I certainly hope so. Yeah. Have you seen the... Netflix billboard there. I saw the film. You did. That's great. Well, Netflix said the powerful have secrets, the powerless have a weapon, and that's how they advertise seeing all red on Netflix. I I was really surprised when I found out you're coming on the program. I was 
shocked because and you whether you like it or not you're a piece of american history well thank you very much i had no idea when i started out to do some women's rights cases 42 years ago that we would still be doing them 42 years later but we are and we've done it and fought for rights because there's still a huge need there's still so many injustices against women where they're not treated equally still so much violence against women. So we fight against gender violence. What we do is we empower victims uh, of rape, sexual assault, uh, child sexual abuse, and sexual harassment. And, you know, we, we file lawsuits against perpetrators. Uh, we seek to have them prosecuted in an appropriate case in the criminal justice system. Uh, and most of all, we want women to know what their rights are, what their options are. We also do many, many confidential settlements. So no lawsuit is ever filed, but we have made the perpetrator of the wrong accountable because, Sam, we often say that the cost of the wrong should not be borne by the victim. It should be borne by the wrongdoer. Yeah. And so we make the wrongdoer accountable in the civil justice system by making him pay the victim for the wrong he inflicted on her. That becomes a teaching moment for him and an empowerment moment for her because then she can use what we are able to obtain for her, what we're able to win for her, for her therapy bills, for her medical bills, for her lost wages, for her pain and suffering. And she knows that by standing up uh, against the wrongdoer, even if it's on a confidential basis, she's made him accountable. That's really important. Without, I don't want to, I don't want people to not see Seen All Red. I want everybody to go see it. It's on Netflix. And mm-hmm. so you probably know somebody with a subscription and you can go see it. But I want. I hear they give a month free trial. They will well. even give you a month free. <laughs> so that people could watch it and then see if they want to sign up for Netflix. But I don't want anyone to hear this program and not know exactly who you are and what you've done, especially as a way for us to start talking about you as a human. Mm-hmm. And could you go through kind of the credits shamelessly and, and tell us what, what happened, where it started and how you got here? Well, it started because I decided to volunteer some time to the National Organization for Women and the National Women's Political Caucus in the 70s when I became a lawyer because I decided that at the time there were very, very few lawyers who were women and that I felt privileged and I felt that I had a duty to give back. Um, And so I started to take just a few cases and I became the chapter president of the Los Angeles chapter of the National Organization for Women. And the more I took, the more I saw the need to take more cases. And then my first news conference was because there were women lawyers and some judges who came to me and they felt that the governor, Jerry Brown, at the time had not kept his promise to appoint more women judges or enough women judges. So they said, we want you to do a news conference and call on him to keep his promise and appoint more women judges. And I said, well, why me? And they said, well, don't you want to do something for women's rights? I said, yes, but why would anybody come? Nobody's ever heard of me. I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know where to go. I wouldn't know what to do. I've never been to a news conference. They said, 
Just show up at this time in this place and read what we ask you to read. I didn't know at the time why no one else wanted to do it and why me. And I figured out many, many years later, because at the time I was a political novice, I had no clue about politics, that everybody else wanted to be appointed to a judgeship or a higher position in the judiciary or a board, a commission, or an agency, and said they were not going to criticize the governor. They don't want to target on their I was a person who didn't want to be appointed to anything. I never wanted to be appointed to anything. Um, and so, actually, I was the right person for the job, but that's, they didn't tell me that at the time. So I was the only one who would do it. So uh, I did, and as a result, it did get coverage. He appointed more women judges, and then they said, do it again. <laughs> we need more. I did it again. We have did more. At some point, I saw the governor, and he said, Gloria, why are you always criticizing me for not appointing enough women judges? And then he named three or four that he appointed. I said, Governor, when you can't name all of the women judges that you've appointed, that's when you will have appointed enough. That's when I'll stop criticizing you. So that's what happened. And I, I will say that he did go on to appoint more women judges. I think he's been an excellent governor. He's governor now, soon going to be retiring. And uh, I think we were fortunate to have him as governor of California. Yeah. But like, you know, like any group, we had to be strong advocates in order to win fairness. And that's kind of where uh, the the Gloria Allred that is known today was born, right? Exactly. And then we just kept going, going, going. And I never realized before I became an attorney how much injustice there is against women and minorities. It's been astounding to me that it's just worse than anybody knows, except that I know because I do this every day. There's quite a bit that I can never talk about because I do so many confidential settlements. But it's the reason I have this passion for justice and this fire in my belly, so to speak, you know, to win rights and fairness and respect and dignity for women and minorities. When I started also advocating for individuals who are gay and lesbian and transgender. I mean, at the beginning, I didn't even know what the word lesbian meant, frankly. And, um, but I did know that there were men who, if you were involved in the women's movement at the time, would say you're a lesbian. So I said to a friend of mine, what should I say when a man calls me a lesbian? She said, just look them in the eye and say, are you the alternative? Anyway, I, I've done many famous cases, precedent-setting cases for individuals who are gay and lesbian, and we've been able to cite our own precedents in the Court of Appeals because we've won those cases. We had a case involving two lesbian life partners. They were businesswomen. They were not allowed to sit in the romantic section of a restaurant, Papa Shu, which was a fine dining restaurant in Los Angeles, because they said it was just for opposite-sex couples, and, you know, that they said, well, it's, there's a city ordinance that prohibits same-sex couples from sitting in the romantic booths. And, of course, they said, well, we're businesswomen. We're not lawyers, but we can't imagine that there's such a law. And they decided, since they were there to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, what would Martin Luther King Jr. want them to do? And they decided he would want them to call Gloria Allred. So they did, and we fought, and we won that case. 
And then we had a case involving two gay men in the 80s who uh, went to their high school reunion and the publisher of the high school reunion book refused to publish the photo of two gay men together, same-sex couple. He said he had the freedom of speech not to do that. And we fought that case for many years, and we won that case. We had an AIDS discrimination case where uh, a man who disclosed, he made an appointment for a pedicure at Jessica's Nail Salon in West Hollywood. And they gave him the appointment. And then as he was going out, he saw one of his customers. He was a hairstylist. And she said, where have you been, uh, Paul? And he said, well, I, I've actually just released from the hospital. Um, he said he either had HIV or AIDS. And they called and canceled the appointment because they didn't want to give a pedicure to someone who had AIDS. We fought that case for 16 years, including even after he passed away from AIDS. And we won the important precedent that a business cannot discriminate against someone on account of the fact that he's HIV positive or has AIDS. And the court upheld against the challenge, a constitutional challenge, the West Hollywood city law, which prohibited businesses from discriminating. And um, we also, of course, were the first in California to announce that we would challenge the ban on marriages between same-sex couples. Um, in other words, they had a right to marriage equality. Is that Prop 8? Uh, that was before Prop 8. Before Prop 8. This was 2004. We represented Robin Tyler and her now spouse, uh, Diane Olson, and Reverend Troy Perry and his uh, now spouse, Philip DeBleek. And we fought that case for years, and we won the right to marry. And as a result, Robin and Diane became the first couple in L.A. County same same sex couple to be permitted to marry in Beverly Hills. Um, so we have a long history and it continues of fighting for the rights of minorities because we think that everybody is entitled to respect and dignity and to be afforded their rights. You're also counsel on uh, Roe v. Wade, right? Uh, actually, no, but I feel very strongly about Roe v. Wade. I did help Jane Doe. Uh, well, or maybe they called her Jane Rowe, but that wasn't her real name. It was Norma McCorvey. To have a voice to speak out in support of choice, Roe v. Wade is the 1973 United States Supreme Court decision which guaranteed that a woman has a constitutional right to have a legal abortion at least at certain stages of her pregnancy before the fetus becomes viable. That has been challenged constantly ever since the Supreme Court decided it in 1973. Here we are in 2018, and we're very concerned that with the nomination of uh, just Judge uh, Kavanaugh, who is President Trump's nominee to the vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court, which now exists as a result of the retirement of Justice Kennedy, that we're very concerned that he may vote to overturn or at least chip away at Roe v. Wade. The significance of that for the typical person is before Roe v. Wade, states were permitted to criminalize abortion. In other words, 
it wasn't a crime for a woman to have one, but what was a crime for a doctor or any licensed health care provider to provide an abortion. What that meant was that women like me had to go to unlicensed individuals, back alley uh, abortionists who would provide an abortion essentially for money and then leave you to die or, you know, hemorrhage, whatever, they were gone with the money. So that happened to me prior to 73 when I was in my 20s, and that was in the 60s. Um, And so I had to go and have a back alley abortion, and I was left hemorrhaging in a bathtub and almost died. I had a 106-degree fever. I had to be taken to the hospital and packed in ice. That was the only way you could go to the hospital was after you had the abortion and you were bleeding to death. Then they would have a special ward to take care of women like that. You couldn't have the abortion there, but you could get taken care of afterwards. So I never want any woman or any woman's daughter to go through and suffer like I did. There were many women who died from the infection of illegal abortions. Of course, a safe and legal abortion is not one that will cause you to die. But illegal ones, yes. So this is why I'm very concerned when the anti-choice people, I call them mandatory motherhood people, compulsory pregnancy people, want to return it to the states. We know that many states now still have on their books abortion as a crime, and they're just waiting for Roe v. Wade to be overturned so that they can outlaw abortion in those states. Those people who will be most affected, Sam, will be poor women, young women, rural women, and women of color. Many of those women will not even have the bus fare to go to another state to get an abortion, another state where it might be legal. And so this is very dangerous. We're talking about a life and death situation for these women. And we just don't think some stranger in Washington, even on, on the U.S. Supreme Court or in Congress, should be able to make a decision as to whether a woman, young woman or older woman, should be able to get an abortion. We say trust women. And that's what this is all about. Yeah. So we want people now to email, message, call United States senators and say, vote against the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh. This is critical, that he not be confirmed. And the Senate Judiciary Committee will vote. They'll have hearings soon. And then the United States Senate will vote. We really have to put up a big fight not to have him confirmed. This particular judge, Judge Kavanaugh, recently dissented in a case involving a teenager who was an undocumented uh, young woman, and she was in federal custody. She wanted to have an abortion. The United States Court of Appeals, the D.C. Circuit, decided she could have the abortion. Judge Kavanaugh dissented, and he he called it abortion on demand. Whenever we hear that, abortion on demand phrase. That's a code word. We identify people who say and use that clause, abortion on demand, as anti-choice. And we know that President Trump vowed when he ran for office that he would appoint judges who would overturn Roe v. Wade. So we take him at his word that this would be one of those judges. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wild. You know, like I said, up until now, this this program we've we've stayed completely unpolitical. But in this well, politics, er- yeah, affects and, every moment of our lives in every way. Well, in this one every case, moment. when it comes to abortion, I feel like it's not a political issue. It is though. Like, it, it happens, and that's the problem: you know. is that a woman's womb has become a political football. Yeah. And this is wrong. It shouldn't be. It should be a matter of individual choice. That's why we say those of us who are on the side that I'm, I am on are, are pro-choice. Those who are on the other side are anti-choice. In other words, we don't say we're pro-abortion because we're not. We're not advocating that anyone have an abortion. We're advocating that a woman has the right to choose abortion or no abortion. But if the anti-choice forces have their way, it's not going to outlaw abortion. It's just going to outlaw legal and safe abortion. Right. Women will still do what I did prior to Roe v. Wade, which will be to go to those who are doing back alley abortions. And those will be unsafe. And women may die or be maimed as they were prior to 1973 and Roe v. Wade. So this is critical. And before it's too late, before it goes back to the states, we need to take action now. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, that's that's one issue I'm, I'm really okay airing on the program, okay, mostly because... Good. That's good. Um, you know... I understand that it's it's really complicated, especially when you get faith involved and all these other things. But well, but faith shouldn't be involved in politics. A governmental decision. I agree. In a decision that has to do with the United States Constitution. I agree. Because the law, and we live in a country where decisions are supposed to be made on a secular basis. But there are those who want your right, who want to impose their religious beliefs on others who have different religious beliefs. That's why we try to keep religion out of politics so that we have a country decided by laws and, you know, I not by someone else's religious beliefs. If we're if you're pro-choice, you have a choice yourself to have an abortion or not. If you're a woman, um, you should have that choice. And you you know, I I trust women to make the best decision for themselves. But there are others who apparently don't trust women. Yeah. And they're anti choice. They want to make the choice for them. And some of them, you know, they say they're pro life, but then they'll kill someone who is pro choice. So apparently they justified that killing. For example, the murder of Dr. George Tiller, who was someone who flew in and gave abortions legally to women who couldn't find them anywhere else in their state from a licensed healthcare providers. He was murdered. He was assassinated while he was standing in the church foyer waiting to go into the church to hear his wife sing in the choir on Sunday. This is the kind of country we have come to live in and we have to end this violence against women and violence against doctors who are really heroes for helping to provide 
what should be a woman's fundamental right and which right now as, as a constitutional matter is their right. Yeah. So I want to talk about you and your legend. And so Gloria, you're known for the, the power of the press and getting together a press conference and coming in and getting the word out. Mm-hmm. And I translate that to, I help women and minorities to have a voice. Yeah. So that, we can create a climate of opinion that is supportive of change. Because I do believe what Gandhi said, which is you must be the change you wish to see in the world. But unless people hear the problems that women face, the injustices that they are forced to suffer and that minorities are forced to suffer, then politicians won't see any need to change and to pass laws which will protect them. So that's why we have to make sure that the typical individual's voice is heard. People seem to have no problem with the voices of celebrities being heard. But I think people who are not celebrities are just as important as celebrities. And what matters to them and what happens to them and the injustices that these people are forced to suffer, often because a celebrity has inflicted an injustice on them, that matters as well. So we have to even the playing field. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was interesting, um, the target that got painted on your back of that, uh, you, because you were always at the, the center of big controversy, because you're always in the light when there was a light shining on it, uh, for some reason that was a bad thing. Because you see like other greats, um, it, well, I guess Martin Luther King also had his fair share of detractors. Obviously. Very, very much so. But he was there. He understood the power of mm-hmm. press and the power of taking, you know, getting at the place at the right time. And, mm-hmm. but you also have people like Houdini that nobody had a problem with. And he would camp out in front of newspapers and set up a high wire on their building to, to get the word out. And, and that was important, but that that's more publicity and marketing for him. Yeah. But for Martin Luther King Jr. and for me, it was about shining the light on injustices. And yes, it's controversial because it's controversial to want to break out of the status quo. Right. Status quo, that is meaning how things are now, is not favorable to women and minorities. And so to advocate that, for example, African-Americans or Latinos should be treated equally under the law. That's controversial. And that's a statement of how far we still need to go. The idea that it's controversial to advocate that women should enjoy equal rights or be free of injustices against them on account of their gender, the fact that that's controversial, again, shows you how far we have to go. Um, but that is not a reason to stop. It's just a reason to fight harder. Well, I wanted to bring it up because I feel like everybody at some point is going to have an opportunity to really step up to the plate. Everybody now has an opportunity. Um, everybody should do it in every way they can. They can write checks. They can invest their time. They can be heard on the internet. They can run for office. They can do anything and everything that they can that's legal and peaceful and sometimes not so peaceful to advocate for what they believe in. I think everybody has an opportunity to make a difference. 
and the time to do that is now. I wanted to ask, though, where you knew the, the more you dug in, the more shit would get slung your way. Well, and you know, I always say that's a sign of our saying something important. Otherwise, there would be no blowback. If there is no controversy, it must mean that either what we're saying is not important or it's not making an impact. So I'm a, a person who believes in the marketplace of ideas, and I'm happy to to make our arguments. People who call names are generally, when they do that, they're usually showing that they don't have any good argument against what I'm saying, because all they can do is grunt and use four-letter words. Um, and that, to me, is a sign that we've won our argument, because if they had a good argument, they'd give it, and if not, they'd just call names. So it doesn't bother me. This is the price we pay for fighting against injustice. Yeah. My, my favorite line from the movie was, women depend on me to be strong, to be fearless, and... I know that at some point you must have that naturally inside of you, but how if you could talk to somebody who inside feels like they could be doing something, what, even if it's not activism, but it's just something in their life that they feel a calling to do, how would you guide them to find the strength to, to do it? I would say it's always wise to weigh the benefits versus the risks of taking action. And there are always benefits and there are always risks. But there's a cost to doing nothing. And there's a cost to doing something. So one just has to do the, the calculus and decide what is the price of staying silent? What's the price of doing nothing? Five years from now, will you wish you had done something? What's the something you will wish you had done? Don't want to be a person who says, I would have, I could have, I should have, but I didn't. There are time limits in the law for asserting rights. They're called statutes of limitations. It's different in every state, different depending on what it is that's wrong, different for criminal, different for civil, different if you're a child, or adult survivor of child sexual abuse, for example, or an adult survivor of adult sexual abuse. So I would say, if it's a legal matter, Sam, seek the advice of an attorney and help to, to understand, well, help, you know, ask the attorney questions so that you know what your options are. Most people from watching television understand that there is such a thing as a criminal justice system. That's not the only system there is. There's also a civil justice system. So even if a district attorney or city attorney decides not to prosecute, you may still have options like filing a civil lawsuit to seek compensation from the wrongdoer. And there are many attorneys who will do that on a contingency, like we will, depending on the case, meaning you don't have to pay anything and the attorney only gets paid if they're successful. Uh, and then, uh, in addition, there is also the option of confidential settlements without any lawsuit. I just came from doing one in New York this week. I do them constantly in many cities, in many states. Uh, it's a one-day process. Only the parties know. 
who was there, only the parties and their attorneys, and what the outcome was. So everything's done confidentially. So people who are in fear, for example, that, well, it might affect their future employment if they sue their employer. Well, they can have a confidential settlement. No one will ever know. And we can often get a referral, you know, a good recommendation for the next employer. Um, we also do this with rich and powerful and famous employers. But powerful people can also be somebody just in your own life who's not famous, like maybe a stepfather who sexually abused you. Maybe this might be an option for a victim. Um, or maybe it's a priest or a minister or a rabbi who abused you. Or maybe it's a teacher or a coach. Um, so everybody should learn what their options are because there are ways to be empowered. And you might want to take advantage of that. As I say in the Netflix documentary, Seeing All Red, my goal is to move people from being victims to becoming survivors to becoming fighters for change. And that's empowering. And once an individual is empowered, they're never the same again. And they become role models in their own family and in their workplace and in their community. You become a stronger person. And you realize that you have more strength and courage to win justice than you ever realized you had. One of the things I noticed that I really respected about you is today, if you go onto any of the 24-hour news cycle, there's a ton of people talking over each other and almost getting belligerent with each other. And one of the things I really valued about your approach was that you were firm and you were concise. You made sure you were heard, and then you would do exactly what you're doing now, which is take a seat back and let them respond. And I thought that was a real sign of confidence and something that you don't see a lot of now. You see a lot of people yelling at each other, but you don't see a lot of people going, this is what I believe. Do you want to respond to that? Well, it may be that people who are yelling are doing that for a theatrical impact or effect, for example, on television or on the internet, yeah. or it may be a substitute for a good argument. Yeah. But if you are prepared and you know what the points are that you want to make, you also want to listen to the other side. Maybe you'll actually learn something. Maybe you'll actually change your mind. Maybe you can change the mind of the other person. Yeah. But it's not just about talking, it's also about listening and hearing what the other side has to say. And I agree with you, there is quite a bit of shouting going on and not a whole lot of listening. And I think it's really important to help those who are listening to the debate to develop an opinion themselves that's based on facts. Facts do matter. Truth matters. The idea that I still have to say that in 2018, truth matters, because it's an issue as to whether it does, is also a statement of how far we have to go and what has happened in our country that it's even debatable as to whether truth matters. Yeah. Meg uh, had a really great question, which was, you've always, you've had a ton of great wins, but how do you handle loss? And like you said that you take two steps forward, one step back constantly, there's a lot of disappointments in uh, women's rights and minorities' rights. Mm -hmm. And 
life has a ton of disappointments and how do you keep going? Because it could be somebody who's just, you know, trying to follow their dreams of being something. And they, you get these big losses that feel like, how do you keep going? Well, I think it's a question of expectations. And it's also a question of attitude. Dr. Tiller said attitude is everything. I mean, it's the question of when you look at a glass that is half filled, uh, do you say, do you think of it as this glass is half filled or is it half empty? Uh, I look at it as though it's half filled. And so I'm essentially an optimist. On the other hand, I do have reasonable expectations. Now, what's reasonable differs from person to person. And I do know that the legal system is not adequate. So sometimes we have to go to the legislature to change laws to make it a better and fairer system. Uh, but I do think that overall we are making progress. But again, we have to fight for our rights. So, for example, sometimes the lower courts do not do what I think is justice. So then we have to appeal to the Court of Appeals, California Court of Appeals, United States Court of Appeals. And there, usually the judges are more likely and more willing to essentially be more courageous and decide cases and interpret the law in ways that perhaps a trial court has not been willing to do. So I've come to understand that in terms of winning new rights, that, you know, it takes longer than I would like, but that's the way it is in the system. And that overall we are making progress. And that's good. Even in any situation where there's a disappointment, it's an opportunity to have a teaching moment for yourself and understand that, you know, there's more that can be done to win justice. So, look, we all have challenges, different challenges for different people. We all have perhaps disappointments in our life. We all have situations where we say to ourselves, that's not fair. I'm a good person. I didn't deserve that to happen. But again, I like to think of the saying, and I don't remember who said it, but I love the saying that life is what's happening while you're planning other things. <laughs> and you think you have a script and then suddenly something comes down into your script for your life. And it's like, wait, what happened? It's like a meteor struck that wasn't supposed to happen to you. It wasn't fair. Well, life is not fair. Let's accept that. We can make it fairer, and maybe we can learn something from a disappointment and not let it destroy us or floor us or stop us from moving forward. I tell people, Take the anger and the rage that you feel about something you think was unfair, which might very well have been, by the way, unfair. And don't try to escape from it. Don't try to take drugs or alcohol or tranquilize yourself out of the pain you feel from that moment. Treasure that rage and anger and turn it outward into constructive action because it's a terrific source of energy. 
and everyone can do something. Maybe you can run for office. Maybe you can send a message to a legislator about changing a law. There's quite a bit that you can do. Maybe you can contribute to a political campaign and a candidate that you believe in who shares your values. There is something that everybody can do to live your values. So don't turn it inward and destroy yourself. Don't turn it outward and scapegoat your family and friends or people in your workplace or your community who don't deserve it. Don't think you're the only one who's faced something unfair in your life. Just do something about it and move on. You'll learn from it. And hopefully you'll become a better person and you can, you know, not only survive, but you can thrive. And that's what people who are successful generally do. They look at it as an opportunity to learn and then just keep going. And that's what I suggest. Hmm. That, In a way, that's like saying there's a purpose in suffering. Now, none of us would like to suffer if we don't have to, unless we're masochists, and certainly I'm not. Most people are not. But maybe there's an opportunity to learn, and maybe you don't even know what that purpose is until many years later. And many years later, for example, if you're a rape victim, maybe you now understand, well, now I can understand others better and I can help them. Or if you're a victim of discrimination, now I can help somebody I can understand. Maybe you can help your children to understand how to better cope with unfairness and disappointment. So there are opportunities to learn from it. Maybe you don't know what the purpose was then, but if you believe there could be a purpose, it may be that many years later it will reveal itself to you. It's also a test of you. How are you going to react? It's easy to react to success if you think you deserve it, but then there's some people who don't even think that. It's harder to react to failure because we're not used to that. We're not, we don't, you know, the fairy tales don't tell us about that. The action heroes, you know, usually successful. So we have to face the reality. Reality is not always what we want, but we can learn from it. We can be better people. We can all make this a better world. Each of us, I don't care what we do, if we're a factory worker, if we're a carpenter, if we're, you know, a food server, Whatever we do in this world, we can all make, we all have an opportunity to make this a better world and a fairer world. Yeah. You're pretty well known for being, uh, at least coming off as fearless, but your clients are often, you're often representing them against titans of industry. That's right. Incredibly powerful Mm -hmm. people with unlimited resources. And when they feel like backing out, when they're getting scared or mm-hmm. a bad development happens, how do you pull them back in? How do you tell them to keep going? What's the pep talk look like? Well, here's the word that you use that I think is so important. Fear is a weapon that has kept women and minorities and individuals down. And of course, fear is a weapon that is used by the powerful against the powerless. Because if they can keep you in fear, then you won't do anything about the injustices they've inflicted on you. And sometimes there's a real basis for that fear. There are risks. 
in asserting rights, but of course, there are risks in not asserting them as well. So what I try to do, Sam, is substitute information for fear, because the more information and the more communication I have with the client to answer their questions and also to help them understand what's going to happen next so they're not in fear of what's going to happen next and how this will proceed and how they have a team to protect them. They're not alone anymore. That, I think, helps them to feel supported and be supported and move forward to assert their rights. Just honesty and good communication, I think, helps. And fighting fear with information. I really yes, like absolutely. Because I'm thinking about self-fear a lot, too. Pardon me? I'm thinking about like kind of self-doubt, self-fear. Well, self-doubt yeah. and self-fear. But yes, again, when they recognize that fear is a weapon, yeah, that's what it is, and what the cost of living in fear is. It's very self-destructive. Tremendous. Um, then the cost of what they could obtain if they can substitute that fear for empowerment. A lot of people choose empowerment once they understand what their options are and how they can proceed to exercise their options. So that's what we do. The system generally won't tell them that. The system doesn't want them to know that. Corporations don't want them to know that. Big corporations, powerful people don't want them to know it. But once we can share that with them, it's like, wow, I can do that? Fantastic. So I get, I'm happy to say, many, many thank yous from people that we've represented saying, wow, this really helped to change my life. I can have a new chapter now. I, I, I can move away from this powerful person. I can, you know, have a new life now. I can, you know, continue with my therapy and I'm just feeling stronger already. So not just to tell them they're getting stronger, but for them to see that what action they took helped them to become stronger encourages them in the future to stand up for themselves. So I was a teacher for six and a half years prior to becoming an attorney, public school teacher. And so I'm big on using this as well as something that teaches an individual that they can stand up for themselves. And once they realize that, it's just they're transformed. Yeah. And you do it so elegantly. There's a scene in the movie where there's a really kind of intimidating guy in your face mm -hmm. telling you, do you know you're going to go to hell? Do you know what you're doing? Right. This and that. Mm -hmm. And your response, you, you were, you didn't flinch. And you just said, first, I just want to thank you for exercising your, your right to free speech. And then you talked and you guys never found common ground, but it wasn't, there's just something so beautiful about that where you just said, like, it was almost like, I understand that you're really upset about this. But, he, he, yeah. he appeared to be completely shocked and off balance. It was. When I did that, because I think he expected an argument is my guess. Yeah. Uh, rather than a conversation and rather than being respected, even though we differ. And I think everybody's entitled to respect, including people with whom I disagree. So, yeah, that was a, a spontaneous and very unexpected moment, that whole scene. I'll let people see the film and see it. And so beautiful. But that, thank you. And it was completely unexpected. 
I, I will say after this, my producer, who was not with me at the time because she didn't know I was suddenly going to be in that situation, she was in a different place, was after we left, very upset, shaking and crying a bit because she thought that something was going to happen to it was me. Really intense. Very yeah. intense. And she thought, you know, I might be the victim of physical violence, but it didn't work out that way. It all worked out. So, and I'm happy about that because, you know, we have to treat everybody with respect. And that's what this is all about. So, we're just very fortunate. Most of all, what I'm happy about about this film is that I have received emails and messages from women all over the world who've seen it on Netflix and who say they're all fired up as a result. Maybe they were depressed before, but now they are fired up and want to take action and feel very empowered. And empowering women and minorities is what I'm all about. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge wake-up call because, you know, for me, I grew up in a radically different landscape even um even though there's still plenty of injustice the just the scope of it is way different and um you know we got a chance to speak to melba beals who's one of the little rock nine she was on this program and it's jaw-dropping for me as a semi-young person i'm getting older but the semi-young person realized how soon how recent this all was because it feels like you learned about it in school it was something that happened in textbook mm-hmm um, but yeah, seeing all red, it's, it was really like, wow, this was, that's what TV looked like, you know? That's right. Exactly. Well, for women's rights, it's always two steps forward, one step back. And that's because as I always say, we have to fight for our rights. No one's ever given us our rights. We have to fight for them in order to win them. It took 72 years for women to win the right to vote, the addition of the 19th Amendment, suffrage to the United States Constitution. It's now taken us 95 years, and we still have not won the addition of the Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution that states very simply that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So we're one state away, and then we still have to get Congress to repeal the deadline. But uh, we have to keep fighting for that. Hmm? What bill is that? It's the Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution. And that originally was in the House a long time ago. Yes. Well, it was first suggested by Alice Paul in 1923. And that's after we won suffrage in 1920, the right to vote. Uh, And so it Congress... Uh, has sent it out to the states, has passed it. Uh, and we needed 38 states in order to ratify it for it to become an amendment to the United States Constitution. But during the process of getting the states to ratify, Congress decided they were going to put a deadline on ratification by the states. Such a deadline was not imposed on most amendments to the United States Constitution. But here we go, double standard for women, there was a deadline. And we were unable to win 38 states by the deadline. So now we're trying, we need one more state, Illinois just passed it, or ratified it. And we now we need one more state. And then 
we have to get Congress to remove the deadline, uh, or we have to win that in a court in a court case, uh, and then it can be added to the Constitution. There's only one place in the United States Constitution where ev- women are even mentioned, and that's in the Nineteenth Amendment suffrage, the right to vote. Which was added many years later. So we need the ERA because that's a guarantee of equal rights and equal treatment for women under the law. And without it, for example, Congress, this Republican Congress majority, for example, could repeal laws that have been passed that guarantee women equal rights because they're just statutes passed by Congress. They could be repealed. But if we have that guarantee in the United States Constitution of equal rights, the Equal Rights Amendment, then they will not be able to repeal equal rights for women. So we want that insurance. We want that guarantee. We want that statement Yeah, and just uh, in the Constitution. That's what this is all about. Tie up a loose end that's been loose for a while, too. Pardon me? And a tie up a loose end that's been... Yeah, it's a big loose end. Yeah. And it's a loose end that affects the majority of the American people, yeah. the majority being women. You've been right. really generous with your time. Thank you. Well, we have a last question or so? Or Yeah. Go ahead. Go for it. Um, I like to, well, can I ask two? Can I get two questions? Go. Okay. Why not? One is, this was a, a question asked by one of our patrons who support this financially. Okay. And they wanted to know, what is your required reading for young people or viewing? Well, I am actually a great fan of Charles Dickens. I grew up reading Charles Dickens and the many classics that he wrote. And the reason I say that is because if you read... Oliver Twist, if you read anything by Charles Dickens, Tale of Two Cities, you will see David Copperfield. You will see and read about so much injustice in a beautifully written manner, and you will understand the depth of it. And possibly what could be done as well. So I would say that. Um, Of course, I would love everybody to read Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice of the Supreme Court. A lot of people call her the notorious RBG, wonderful woman who is on our United States Supreme Court. She's written a book called In Her Own Words, and that's important. Um, of course, read anything and everything by Martin Luther King Jr., by Susan B. Anthony, who fought to win the right to vote. I think all of this is important. And when I was a teacher, I always I created a class called Reading for Pleasure. Because I think if young people start reading for pleasure and not just what they're required to read. They develop a love of reading. And it's really important to read and not just to, you know, short statements on the internet, but actually thoughtful 
books, which are so exciting. I mean, there's such an adventure. Um, I always felt as a as a girl, as a young girl in high school, and in elementary and junior high school, these days it's called middle school, that we didn't have much money. I was in a row house. My parents only had eighth grade education. We didn't have a car. But I always felt by reading, I could go anywhere and everywhere on earth just by the books that I was reading. It was a great adventure and not limited by wealth. And so that's what I would say. This world of ideas, it's very exciting. Once you enter into it, you say, wow, I never knew it could be so exciting. Transports you and provokes you to thinking in a way that perhaps you have never done before. This is the last question. Uh, if Tell it to the judge. <laughs> if you could record a message that either, I like to visualize it this way. If you could pick up the phone as a young woman and hear a message from yourself today, what would you want to tell her about what's important about being human? What's important about living a good life? What's important is living your values. And I'm Jewish, so we feel as a Jewish people that our duty is to repair the world. And what that means is each one of us can make this a better world than it was when we were born, each in our own way. You don't have to be a person that solves the biggest problems on earth, but you can make it a better world by the way you live, by living your values, by not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Everybody can make a contribution. You just have to say, in what way can I make this a better world? Can I help someone else? Can I reach out? What, what can I do? And there are many, many organizations that need help. And there are many ways to help. It's just a question of making the commitment to do that and living your dreams. I would say that I like the mantra of the women's marches this year. And that was, you are the leaders that you have been waiting for. I love that. Thank you for your time. Thank you. We did it. That's the end of the episode. We showed up, did our best, and this is this one's in the books. And it's it was a great conversation. If you enjoyed Gloria Allred, go see the documentary Seeing Allred on Netflix. It's really well done. It's a fun movie to watch. And it's also really educational and inspiring and many other things. Follow us on Instagram, hellohumans.co, or me, Sam Lamont. And if you love this program, you can always support us at patreon.com slash hellohuman and contribute a buck a month or $4 a month or whatever is comfortable. This is the How to Human podcast. It's a production of Hello Humans, and it's produced by me and our producer, Meg Schmidt.